0: They say carbs are the enemy. I say ill informed medical students are the enemy. Pass the chips ahoy. Welcome to the Grenzone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here's your host, Dr. Logan Kolb.
1: Alright, here we go again, and thanks again for tuning in. So I hope you're still patting yourselves on the back for getting through the content of the last two episodes with vasculitis, and the weirdness of gerititis. Today we will slightly shift gears towards another challenging topic with the vasculopathies, which refer to conditions that cause vascular damage without meeting criteria for vasculitis. These patients can present with purpura of various shapes and sizes, which may look similar to vasculitis, but they are managed very differently. Therefore, it is crucial to get the diagnosis correct so you can treat patients properly. In today's episode, we're going to learn a little about the many conditions that can contribute to a vasculopathy, and thankfully, we have Dr. Grumpy Pants to join us and give us some pearls.
0: It's about time they had that wacko gerititis removed from the premises. What on earth is wrong with that man? I can't believe I used to call him friend. Before we get into the vasculopathies, let's
1: quick go over our reaction patterns and mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmsted Medical Center, or their affiliates. Remember the five reaction patterns are papulosquamous, eczematous, vascular, dermal, and vesiculobullus. We are currently going through the third group, the vascular disorders, which we are breaking into eight subgroups, including one, erythema multiforme, two, the toxic erythema group, which includes drug eruptions like DRESS syndrome, the viral exanthems, and the toxin-mediated eruptions, such as staph-scalded-skin syndrome. The third subgroup of vascular reaction patterns are the figurate erythemas, such as erythema marginatum, seen in rheumatic fever. Fourth, we have urticaria, five vasculitis, six vasculopathy, which we'll cover in depth today, then seven retiform purpura, which we'll discuss in the next episode, and eight vascular growths, including neoplasms and vascular malformations. Now remember, when it comes to these purpuric rashes, I want you to all think of the anatomy of the blood vessels when you're making your differential diagnosis. We break this into three locations for pathology. Number one, problems with the vessel walls themselves, such as inflammation and vasculitis, or other alterations due to diabetes, amyloid deposition leading to pinch purpura, or calcium deposition, as in calciphylaxis. Location number two is intravascular pathology, which basically includes vasculopathies that we'll discuss today, such as coagulation or platelet abnormalities, along with embolic conditions. Then number three, problems outside the blood vessel wall, such as connective tissue issues like scurvy or actinic purpura. In both scurvy and actinic purpura, you have problems with collagen in the dermis that's cushioning those vessels. Therefore, minimal trauma leads to easy bruising. So for vasculopathies, it can simply be defined as any disease affecting the blood vessels. However, the term vasculopathy is typically used to describe vascular damage that lacks the features of vasculitis. So we're typically not seeing perivascular inflammatory cells like neutrophils and lymphocytes, and we're not seeing fibrin deposition in the blood vessel walls with vasculopathies. Yet, some providers will use the term vasculopathy to describe cases of vasculitis without a known cause, so the use of the term vasculopathy can get a little wonky. But to keep things simple, just think of vasculopathies as conditions with blood vessel damage in the absence of vasculitis. So what causes vasculopathy then? It is often due to problems with clotting, which is typically an inherited or acquired issue with platelets or the coagulation pathway.
0: Oh, look who it is, the Damn Dreamer. I've got news for you. This isn't a Disney movie, and even if you get into dermatology, you might not have a happy ending. But there's no reason to dwell on that now, is there? How about you summarize the coagulation pathways in 30 seconds?
1: Actually, how about no, Dr. G? But I do want you all to remember some of the basics. There are intrinsic and extrinsic pathways that activate coagulation proteins to eventually turn fibrinogen into fibrin, which changes a weak platelet plug into a stable platelet fibrin mesh. Disorders of the coagulation pathway proteins don't allow this transformation of fibrinogen to fibrin to take place. Therefore, patients make weak platelet plugs that make vessels prone to bleeding. And obviously other platelet issues can lead to bleeding such as low platelet counts that we call thrombocytopenia, or abnormal platelet function due to drugs, renal failure, or genetic platelet abnormalities. So here's a nice rule of thumb. We typically think of coagulation disorders leading to increased bruising, while platelet disorders typically lead to petechia, platelets petechia. Let's go through a couple examples to help you remember this. For coagulation issues, think of your typical Coumadin patient.
0: I just bruise so easily on this Coumadin. Doctor, I would bruise if I bumped against a down pillow.
1: Coumadin, aka warfarin, impairs your vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. So this helps you remember disorders of coagulation factors leading to bruising. Then for platelet issues, picture your patient with idiopathic thrombocytopenic
0: purpura, aka ITP. <laughs> Every time I brush my teeth, my gums bleed. My girlfriend is a smoke show, but she won't kiss me anymore. Plus, I have all these little red dots in my mouth and on my arms. Are they contagious?
1: <laughs> Those red dots he's referring to are petechiae. so remember, platelet disorders often lead to petechiae. So now that we've got a little background, we're going to quickly go through disorders of coagulation and then issues with platelets. When it comes to coagulation abnormalities, they can be either inherited or acquired.
0: These patients are exceptionally infuriating this morning, and your rudimentary dermatology knowledge isn't helping my mood either. Name five inherited coagulopathies.
1: The inherited coagulopathies that we'll quickly run through include factor V Leiden, protein C or S deficiencies, antithrombin 3 deficiencies, hyperhomocysteinemia, and sickle cell disease. Again, some inherited coagulopathies include factor V Leiden, protein C or S deficiencies, antithrombin 3 deficiencies, hyperhomocystinemia, and sickle cell disease. These patients can present with issues during infancy or later in life. Factor V Leiden patients make factor V that is resistant to degradation by protein C. Therefore, their coagulation cascade is activated for a longer amount of time and they are prone to clotting. And speaking of protein C, remember that patients with protein C or S deficiency are less capable of inactivating factors V and V, so they are also prothrombotic. Here's an analogy. If the coagulation pathway is like driving a car, patients with Factor V Leiden have a lead foot, while patients with protein C or S deficiency have crappy brakes, which puts either patient at a higher risk of venous thromboembolism and skin necrosis.
0: Okay, that wasn't so bad, but you're far from impressing me. You'll hear Dr. Dude and some other hippies talk about connecting with the patient, and there is some truth to that. Since I'm not one for the sentiment, I will use the timeless words of one of the greatest, Sir William Osler, who said, It is much more important to know what sort of patient has a disease than what sort of a disease a patient has.
1: The next inherited coagulopathy that I'll quickly mention are the antithrombin-3 mutations. Remember that antithrombin-3 blocks factors 2 and 10, more so than 9, 11, and 12. So, antithrombin-3 is another set of breaks for the coagulation pathway. With antithrombin-3 mutations, patients lose their breaks and all these factors are more active, leading to thrombotic disease. Antithrombin-3 is activated by heparin, therefore you're blocking those coagulation factors and slowing down the clotting cascade. So we've covered four inherited coagulopathies: factor V Leiden, protein C or S deficiencies, and antithrombin 3 deficiencies. Two more inherited coagulopathies to go: hyperhomocysteinemia and sickle cell disease. High levels of homocysteine can actually be acquired or inherited, but it's important to know that these patients have a 2 to 4 times higher risk of thrombosis. Then you all know sickle cell disease well, in which acidosis or low oxygen levels leads to adherence of these sticky sickle cells to the vascular endothelium, activating coagulation and then leading to vascular obstruction. Next, let's shift gears and discuss the acquired coagulopathies. The acquired coagulopathies include antiphospholipid syndrome, liver disease, type 1 cryoglobulinemias, and purpura fulminans.
0: You are starting to bore me again. Why don't you name the three antiphospholipid antibodies in the clinical presentation for an antiphospholipid syndrome patient?
1: The three antiphospholipid antibodies are anticardiolipin, lupus anticoagulant, and antibeta-2-glycoprotein. Again, the three antiphospholipid antibodies are anticardiolipin, lupus anticoagulant, and antibeta-2 glycoprotein. These antiphospholipid antibodies make patients more prone to forming clots. Therefore, they may have a history of either stroke, MI, DVT, PE, or multiple miscarriages. Cutaneous changes are related to occlusion and include levito reticularis, splinter hemorrhages, and purpura that can take on a retiform shape. Because antiphospholipid syndrome is a vasculopathy, biopsy will show fibrin thrombi with minimal inflammation and no leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Antiphospholipid syndrome is most commonly associated with systemic lupus, but it may be seen with other autoimmune conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, or it can fly solo without an associated disorder as well.
0: Ah, I only smoke when I drink. I only drink when I smoke. I like to have a cigarette, so what? Oh, hey, Dr. G, you gotta sign the billing sheet. Here's a pencil.
1: The next acquired coagulopathy occurs with liver disease. I don't wanna get too far into the weeds, but just remember that liver disease can affect not only coagulation factor production, but also has an impact on our platelet function. Then we have type one cryoglobulinemia. Remember from the first vasculitis podcast that types 2 and 3 cryoglobulins have a mix of IgM and IgG, therefore you get immune complexes that activate the immune system and cause a leukocytoclastic vasculitis. Type 1 cryoglobulinemia is different. Type 1 cryoglobulinemia patients usually have a lymphoproliferative disorder that makes a bunch of monoclonal IgM more so than monoclonal IgG and these clog up the vessels leading to a vasculopathy and not a vasculitis. Patients will have purpura, levito reticularis, and classic cold-induced lesions on the ears. So that covers our first three acquired coagulopathies, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, liver disease, and type 1 cryoglobulinemias. The fourth and final one that we'll discuss is purpura fulminans, which refers to an acutely sick patient with disseminated intravascular coagulation, aka DIC, who develops diffuse purpura. We'll discuss purpura fulminans more in the next episode on retiform purpura. I also want to mention some common miscellaneous risk factors for acquired hypercoagulation, which are all really important to be aware of. These include immobilization, obesity, cancer, pregnancy, smoking, and certain drugs such as oral contraceptive pills or levamisole and cocaine. Again, risk factors for acquired hypercoagulation include immobilization, obesity, cancer, pregnancy, smoking, and certain drugs like oral contraceptive pills or levamisole in cocaine. All right, and that covers the coagulation disorders. Before we go into platelet disorders, let's take a quick mental music break. Now that we've gone through disorders of the coagulation pathways, we'll look at abnormalities in the platelets themselves which can be due to either decreased number or abnormal function. Decreased platelet counts, aka thrombocytopenia, can be caused by increased platelet destruction or decreased production from the bone marrow. Conditions causing increased platelet destruction include idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, aka ITP thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, a.k.a. TTP, disseminated intravascular coagulation, a.k.a. DIC, and heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, a.k.a. HIT. Thank God for acronyms. So again, remember conditions with increased platelet destruction include ITP, TTP, DIC, and HIT. Then we have abnormal platelet function caused by genetic syndromes, uremic platelet dysfunction seen in renal patients, or acquired platelet dysfunction from medications such as aspirin, NSAIDs, or clopidogrel. So we'll hit some very basic highlights of each of these, starting with the conditions causing increased platelet
0: destruction. Oh, hey man, I still got these dots on my arm and promise coming up. You fix my ringworm and emphysema or whatever it was called. can you give me a freaking pill or something for this too? Idiopathic
1: thrombocytopenic purpura, aka ITP, is an autoimmune destruction of platelets due to IgG autoantibodies coating our platelets and leading to macrophage consumption in our spleen. Patients will have a prolonged bleeding time, but all the coagulation markers like PTT and PT will be normal. Bleeding and petechia occur when platelet counts get less than 50,000. Serious hemorrhage occurs at less than 10,000. And when platelet counts get less than 2,000, that's when we're really worried about intracranial hemorrhages. ITP can occur chronically in adults, especially those with systemic lupus or H. pylori infections, and it can be seen acutely in kids after viral infections like parvovirus B19. Treatment of ITP includes corticosteroids, IVIG, or splenectomy in serious cases. The next disorder with low platelets is thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, aka TTP. It is caused by a deficiency of ADAMTS13, which normally cleaves von Willebrand's factor multimers. Since these VWF multimers build up in TTP cases, you get platelet aggregation and thrombosis leading to petechia and multiple bruises. I remember the classic pentad for TTP using a mnemonic I got from Steve Carroll's EM Basic podcast called FAT RN. F is for fevers, A for anemia, which is a hemolytic anemia, T for thrombocytopenia, R for renal abnormalities, and N for neurologic symptoms such as confusion, hemiplegia, and seizures. And a quick side note, remember that hemolytic uremic syndrome, a.k.a. HUS, is often discussed alongside TTP because of the similar clinical presentation. HUS is more likely seen in kids after infection with E. coli 0157H7 and has a prodrome of bloody diarrhea. HUS has the triad of hemolytic anemia, thrombocytopenia, and renal failure, but doesn't have the fevers and neurochanges of TTP. The next disorder on our menu of low platelets is Disseminated Intravascular Coagulopathy,
0: a.k.a. DIC. Ah, what exactly is DIC and what are the triggers?
1: DIC, also known as consumptive coagulopathy, is caused by massive activation of coagulation leading to ischemia, diffuse thromboses which chop up red blood cells leading to hemolytic anemia, and eventually consumption of coagulation factors and platelets that eventually lead to bleeding. As far as triggers for DIC, I still like the mnemonic from my first aid book called Stop Making New Thrombi, with S standing for sepsis, T for trauma, O for obstetric complications, P for acute pancreatitis, M for malignancy, N for nephrotic syndrome, and T for transfusions.
0: All right. There's a plethora of drugs that can cause thrombocytopenia, but you can't teach a bird to do arithmetic, and so I will only ask you to name three drugs, and you better say the big one.
1: Drug induced thrombocytopenia typically occurs one to two weeks after starting a new drug or can occur quickly after re exposure. The main culprit is heparin, which we refer to as heparin induced thrombocytopenia, aka HIT. Drug induced thrombocytopenia can also be caused by hydrochlorothiazide, penicillins, and acetaminophen.
0: All right, let's make sure you're still awake. If a patient has diffuse non palpable purpura and thrombocytopenia, what conditions are on your differential?
1: Again, for thrombocytopenia, think about increased destruction of platelets or decreased production of them. Conditions causing increased platelet destruction include ITP, TTP, DIC, and HIT. Then remember that problems with the bone marrow can lead to decreased production of platelets, along with decreased production of red and white blood cells. Damage to bone marrow can be caused by chemotherapy with or without ionizing radiation, acute infections like hepatitis or HIV, or infiltration of the bone marrow by lymphomas or other malignancies. Next, let's shift our discussion from low platelet counts to abnormal platelet function. These patients' platelet counts can actually be reduced, normal, or even elevated in the situations we'll discuss.
0: Uh, uh, And what about three conditions that cause abnormal platelet function? Abnormal platelet
1: function can occur due to medications like aspirin, NSAIDs, or clopidogrel. It can also be due to myeloproliferative disorders, multiple myeloma or renal disease when we call it uremic platelet dysfunction. Uremic platelet dysfunction is something that every dermatology resident or provider who sees dermatology hospital consults needs to know because it's not that uncommon. Uremic platelet dysfunction occurs in patients with chronic renal failure and may present with bruising, GI, and GU bleeding. The exact mechanism isn't quite clear, but it may be due to abnormal platelet metabolism or abnormal interactions of those platelets with the endothelium. The use of heparin with dialysis can complicate the picture as well. It's also good to know that the severity of renal failure and severity of platelet dysfunction are not correlated, but the use of dialysis does improve the platelet dysfunction in these patients. So to summarize, remember that platelet function can be affected by medications, myeloproliferative disorders, and renal disease. Okay, so just to recap where we are and where we're going with our vasculopathies, we've discussed one, the inherited and acquired disorders of coagulation, and two, the platelet disorders. Now on to the third and final vasculopathy
0: group, the embolic disorders. So what exactly is an embolism? I have warned you time and time again never to say a word you don't know the meaning of. And also tell me some embolic disorders that lead to purpura.
1: Embolism simply refers to obstruction of an artery, which can be caused by a piece of clot, foreign body, or another protein that becomes lodged in a vessel and obstructs blood flow. Embolism differs from thrombosis in which a blood clot develops at the site of occlusion. So just remember, emboli are thrown from a distant site and lodge into a vessel. Thrombi grow in place. Some embolic disorders that lead to purpura include cholesterol emboli and oxalate emboli. Cholesterol emboli occur when cholesterol fragments dislodge from an atherosclerotic plaque and they travel downstream to plug arterioles in the skin or internal organs. Cholesterol emboli can occur spontaneously or they can classically be seen hours to days after cardiac procedures such as angiography, angioplasty, or coronary artery bypass procedures. Skin changes for these patients most often include levito reticularis and cyanosis of the toes, which we often call blue toe syndrome. But around 10% of these cholesterol emboli patients have purpura as well.
0: Not bad for an ignoramus. And what is the classic lab finding in cholesterol emboli cases?
1: Cholesterol emboli are associated with a peripheral eosinophilia in 15 to 80% of cases, based on the paper you read about it. All right, so we're heading down the home stretch here. I want to finish by discussing a couple miscellaneous vascular disorders with the pigmented purpuras and hypergamma globulinemic purpura of Waldenstrom. We don't consider them vasculitis, but they do have inflammation on path, so I throw them into a miscellaneous category. So let's first start with the Pigmented
0: Purpuras. Ah, Pigmented Purpuras. Not the memory I was looking for. You think I'm bad? My attendings would have sent you home in tears. As a medical student, I had a case of Pigmented Purpura that I failed to properly identify, and my attendings publicly berated me at our M&M conference. I never missed it again. In an effort to avoid repeating history, can you name the five variants of pigmented papyrus?
1: For pigmented purpuric dermatoses, a.k.a. capillaritis, we've got five variants to remember. And forgive me if I butcher these names. So there's number one, Schomberg's purpura. Number two, lichenoid purpura of gujerot and Bloom, with gujerot being spelled G-O-U-G-E-R-O-T. Then there's number three, purpura annularis telangiectoides of Miyake, spelled M-A-J-O-C-C-H-I. Then we have number 4, lichen aureus, and number 5, eczematous dermatitis of Ducus and Capitanacus. So let's hit some basic highlights of each of these pigmented purpuras, and I'll suggest that you Google some images of each of these on your own time to make them stick. Schomburg's disease is pretty common and affects the lower legs of middle-aged adults, and it appears as petechia with golden brown hemosiderin staining that gives it the look of cayenne pepper. The lichenoid purpura of Gujero and Bloom consists of rust-colored to violaceous lichenoid papules on the legs and trunk of older men. Then purpura annularis telangiectoides, a.k.a. Miyake's disease, shows 1-3 to cm annular patches with petechia, typically on the legs of younger women. Lichen aureus consists of solitary or few golden or rust-colored macules or papules, and lastly, the eczematous dermatitis of Ducus and Capitanicus has a mix of eczema and petechia and typically shows up on older men similar to the lichenoid purpura of Guggero and Bloom. Treatment of pigmented purpura is often challenging but includes topical steroids if itching is present and a combination of vitamin C, 500 mg BID, combined with ruticide, spelled R-U-T-O-S-I-D-E, rudicide, 50 mg BID, along with UVB treatments as well. I know this sounds like a lot of word vomit, but it'll all be listed out in the study guide for you all to review. And lastly, I will throw in Waldenstrom hyperglobulinemic purpura, which occurs due to a gammopathy in association with a variety of disorders such as Sjogren syndrome. These patients get episodic showers of petechia all over the body, but especially on the legs. A serum protein electrophoresis, aka SPEP, will show broad-based peaks for IgG and IgA mostly. Many patients will have positive anti ro antibodies as well. So before we close things out, I want to mention that coagulopathy screening is probably best done by our colleagues in hematology. For reference, some common screening labs that are used include PT, PTT, INR, protein C, protein S, factor V Leiden, antithrombin III, prothrombin 20-210 gene mutations, antiprothrombin antibodies, and homocysteine levels. Alright, my friends, let's end strong by summing up our basic differential for the vasculopathies, but we'll start with a quick mental music break. Remember that vasculopathies often present with extensive solar purpura, but they can mimic vasculitis. We broke the vasculopathies into four categories, one being inherited and acquired disorders of coagulation pathways, two, platelet disorders, three, embolic disorders, and four, miscellaneous disorders. The inherited coagulopathies include factor V Leiden, protein C or S deficiencies, antithrombin 3 deficiencies. Hyperhomocysteinemia and sickle cell disease. Our acquired coagulopathies include antiphospholipid syndrome, liver disease, type 1 cryoglobulinemias, and purpura fulminans. Then we have group 2, the platelet disorders, which can result from decreased platelet counts or abnormal platelet function. Decreased platelet counts, aka thrombocytopenia, can be caused by either increased platelet destruction or decreased production from the bone marrow. Conditions causing increased platelet destruction include ITP, TTP, DIC, and HIT. Then decreased platelet production from bone marrow can be caused by chemotherapy with or without ionizing radiation, acute infections like hepatitis or HIV, or infiltration by lymphomas or other malignancies. Then we shifted gears to abnormal platelet function, which can occur due to medications like aspirin, NSAIDs, or clopridogrel, myeloproliferative disorders, multiple myeloma, or renal disease when we call it uremic platelet dysfunction. Then our third group of vasculopathies were the embolic disorders, including cholesterol and oxalate emboli. And lastly, we finished with the miscellaneous disorders with the pigmented purpuras and hypergamma globulinemic purpura of Waldemström. I know this is a mountain of information, but this is dermatology. There's an endless list of disorders out there that can change the skin, so there is a lot to know. But give yourselves another pat on the back. This was a big episode today. We've got one more quick episode next time on retiform purpura. Then we're going to bring it all together at the patient's bedside and see a patient with a purpuric rash and go through the pearls in the H&P and the workup for these patients. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls, but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Z's, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone.
0: Hey doc, I think we got another audit coming in. I'll make sure the charts are in tip-top shape. See you tomorrow. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Grenzone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers.